0: Episode 166 How to Optimize Pharmacy Spend. Today, I speak with Tim Thomas from Crystal Clear RX.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking relentlessly seeking value.
0: Americans spend a lot on prescription drugs, more per capita than any other country by far. Pharmacy spending used to be about 5% of total medical spend, but today it can be as high as 25%. That's a lot of bank. I speak with Tim Thomas from Crystal Clear RX about what we can do to ensure that we're not overpaying for already pricey meds. As a case study, Tim talks about how Caterpillar for one, is dealing with this trend. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Tim. It's good to be here. Let's talk about pharmacy spend. What is the ongoing situation? And aren't pharmacy benefit managers addressing the rising costs?
1: They do, but there are some pluses and minuses to that. When I first got out of pharmacy school, what people did when they went to the pharmacy was they paid cash for their medications, and then they submitted a bill to their insurance company to get some reimbursement. In the 80s, electronic transmissions of uh, prescription claims came about, and uh, that made it a lot easier for folks, and they went to a copay system. So as PBMs grew in power, they do negotiate with pharmaceutical companies and with pharmacy providers to hold down costs. But there are some things going on, too, that could cause PBMs to actually, in some places, maybe increase the cost of what's going on. Mm, How so? Just by some of the practices and some of the revenue streams that uh, exist that the employer group or the payer group may or may not be aware of. Such things as network spread, where the PBM pays the pharmacy one price but bills the client another Uh, The profits that they make off their mail order operations and the lack of transparency around rebate programs, which is where a pharmaceutical company pays a PBM a rebate or dollars to have their drug in preferred position on the formulary or drug list. And unfortunately, that program has quite a bit of a lack of transparency.
0: What's that cliche? You've got the wolf watching the hen house?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fox garden the hen house, yeah. That's it. Uh, that's, that's, that's very true. Payers do need someone on their side, their consultant or someone they've hired to help them when they negotiate contracts with PBMs. Pharmacy benefit management companies negotiate contracts every day. A particular payer may only do it every three years. So, the experience and the knowledge factor is heavily weighted to one side of that negotiation.
0: Yeah, I could see that just in the sense that not only is it a, a negotiating obviously there are that's a skill in and of itself but then also just simply there's if we're talking about pharmaceuticals that's a specialty there's a lot of nuances there
1: yeah there's a there's a, a lot of moving parts in the transaction that occurs from when a patient goes to see a physician to get a prescription then to choose a pharmacy Then to get the prescription filled by the pharmacy, the claim submitted to the PBM, the PBM billing the payer and all the other transactions that go around that. There are just an awful lot of moving parts. And there's a lot of definitions, a lot of things in the contract that you have with a PBM that if it's not clear, it can again be used to to not be in your, your advantage.
0: Pharmacy spend has increased in some cases up to 25% of total spend. Mm -hmm. Is this um, an average increase? Would it look so high if it were a mean?
1: There are several factors to it. Certainly the most recent and obvious are specialty pharmacy products things such as the medications that treat hepatitis C, uh, Harvoni being uh, one of the drugs, and it is a $100,000 course of therapy for three months. Now, the good news is if, if you have hepatitis C and you take Harvoni, you can be cured. So you have less risk down the road of a liver transplant or something that could be very expensive, but like half a million dollars expensive. Again, the challenge is if you're a relatively small payer, you know, maybe with a couple hundred employees, one patient with a $100,000 drug can, can tremendously drive your cost up. So specialty medications certainly are uh, one of the driving factors. Some of the other driving factors are the fact that our population continues to get older. Therefore, there's more medications being used. There's just a lot of things going on that is driving this cost. It's not linear. It's been almost logarithmic in some cases. But the other thing about specialty pharmacy I think that is unique is because there's such a a small percentage of the population that uses it. For example, if you look at traditional pharmacy, you may see as much as 60 or 70% of a population that, that uses that benefit. But with specialty pharmacy, which is now approaching 50% of the, of the total drug spend, but less than 2% of the population typically use that type of product. So it really has created a, a huge cost, but it's also a huge management problem. These drugs have more side effects. There's more need for patient interaction. It may be, behoove the, uh, the payer or the employer group to look at specialty pharmacy really closely and decide, do they want that run through their PBM? Or would they like to carve that out maybe in a way to go to a company that special specializes in in specialty pharmacy
0: and if we dig into specialty pharmacy just a little bit, we've got these orphan drugs, for example, uh-huh. that maybe it's one patient, and the okay. cost of that drug is astronomical, but then you had mentioned harvoni, which is I guess this is like huge air quotes here, only $100,000, but it might affect more than one person. If we're dissecting the specialty pharmacy drug cost, does it tend to be a few super duper expensive drugs or is there kind of this upper middle tier of pretty expensive drugs, but more people are taking them?
1: It's a little of both. Certainly, I think when Harvoni and its predecessor, Sivaldi came out a few years ago, those were kind of the first, you know, $100,000 drugs. That raised people's eyebrows and you kind of saw something there. But in reality, it's been going on for close to 10 years as you have products like Imbrel and Humira who are, much more commonly used for indications such as rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis. You've got other products than for multiple sclerosis. They were sort of expensive before, but over time, their price increases that we've gotten from manufacturers have raised them up to the point now where they may not be $100,000 a month or for a course of therapy, but they still are several thousand dollars a month, and these are drugs that patients will be on for quite a long time. You combine those price increases, which we could get into later if you want on on some of that political issue, but um, you also have the specialty drug pipeline, which is most pharmaceutical companies now are are focusing on specialty products. So you've got quite a few more products coming in the next few years where a hundred thousand uh, dollars may be looked at as as cheap compared to what some of the costs of some of these other therapies are. So. Again, it's going to be a challenge for payers to identify how to manage those costs and how to identify resources to help them manage those costs.
0: If someone said something mm-hmm. to me the other day that my eyebrows went up a little bit and that was that psoriasis is actually because total cost is obviously a function of unit price times quantity. So the point was that psoriasis drugs cost enough and there's enough people taking them that they're a huge slice of a lot of payers pie relative to cost.
1: Yes. Uh, Usually, if you look at the reports that you get from your PBM or from your consultant, you will see of the classes that you, you spend money on, certainly psoriasis is up there, rheumatoid arthritis is up there, MS is up there, hep C is up there. Cancer is obviously up there, but that's a Little different situation because cancer is often handled on the medical side of the benefit, although there's some leakage over to the pharmacy side as well.
0: Does an increase in pharmacy costs lead to? A decrease in medical costs. And in other words, a lot of times when we talk about pharmaceutical products, there's a term, it's called medical cost offset. Mm -hmm. If somebody takes a pharmaceutical, then their subsequent medical costs go down. Similar to the example that you just gave with Harvoni. Mm -hmm. Do you see this now 25% of total spend having an impact on medical costs or do you just basically see prices going up across the board?
1: No, I think, it, I think it does have an impact on medical costs. The question I've always had is, I think pharmacy is a, is a good spend. My question has always been, are we managing the pharmacy cost portion of the spend? But the fact that we're using drugs to prevent illnesses or to, to decrease the impact of illnesses, I think does help on the medical side. But because of the pharmacy costs kind of so getting out of control the last few years, that certainly uh, changed the dynamic. But I still feel that uh, pharmacy costs are a good spend as far as the overall medical cost.
0: Basically, what you're talking about is, is simply that are we getting as much as possible for the dollars that we're spending on pharmaceutical products?
1: Yeah. I mean, look at uh, diabetes. Insulin and oral medications, depending on whether you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, has, has been a stable or a, a standard uh, treatment you know, for for years. But the cost of insulins uh, has dramatically gone up over the last few years. However, what would be happening if you weren't spending that money on insulin? You'd have patients you know, losing limbs. You'd have a lot more complicating diseases. So, I mean, even at the high cost, um, I think they're worth the spend. The challenge, again, I always have is, you know, how can we try to manage that cost better You know, from the payer employer side?
0: And do you have any examples of a payer or an employer doing this well? Like, what does good look like?
1: Well, uh, there's several ways you could uh, address that. And depending on the situation, um, I think there are... Uh, a lot of innovative ideas that are, are are out there. I do feel like we are rapidly approaching a, a tipping point, and that is that uh, the pharmacy cost has gotten to the point where people cannot ignore it anymore, and they ha- they're looking for for solutions. Some of those solutions can be. Uh, really kind of out of the box. For example, you've got Caterpillar up in uh, Illinois who has decided to contract with pharmacies directly as opposed to going through a PBM. So they're more in control of that process. They also have their own formulary. So they don't use what the PBM is suggesting for formulary. They have developed their own based on physicians and other healthcare professionals, uh, advice to them on what is a good therapy and what delivers good patient outcomes. So you've got that. And then you've got, when people do choose a PBM, they're hopefully looking a little more closely Hopefully, they're getting some support to, again, negotiate things in the contract that can help them control their costs. And you've got different models of PBMs. You've got the traditional model PBM, which I described a while ago, that may take a network spread, make money off their pharmacy uh, mail order operations and specialty, and and, uh, make money off the rebates. You've got another kind of PBM called transparent pass-through PBM. And a pass-through PBM does not take a network spread. It uh it, whatever you build, or they build the pharmacy, they build the client. Many of them do not have their own mail order operations, or if they do, they contract it out. Some of them do have a specialty operation, but for the most part, they contract that out. So uh, even though these PBMs can be smaller than some of the larger PBMs, because they're passed through and because their revenue streams are noted and documented a little better, they can actually be less expensive for the client. So uh, those are some of the things I see is just basically having good representation. So no matter what type of PBM you have, you've negotiated a contract that has reduced the vagueness of the contract and you have things much more clear, choosing the type of PBM that works for you, potentially looking at specialty being carved out to a specialty provider. Or in the case of Caterpillar, doing, you may totally you know change the process and bypass some of the services from a PBM.
0: Obviously, Caterpillar is one of the founding members of the HTA, the Health Transformation Alliance. And I had thought that one of the things that the HTA had determined to do was stick with Express Scripts. So they were just going to stick with their original PBM. Did Caterpillar go off on their own with this? And or why didn't the rest of the members of the HTA follow Caterpillar's lead?
1: I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but from uh, what I do know, you know, Caterpillar has been doing this before the HTA was was formed. It has evolved over the last five or ten years. The fact is, I think they, you know, were uh, one of the early advisors to the HTA. Besides just being a member, they actually had some people from Caterpillar sitting in advisory roles in the organization. And I think the HTA eventually. May evolve into a new process. But early on, I think what they thought they would do is combine their lives and actually become, you know, sort of a buying group, is what it appears to be. And uh, it's interesting that uh, they switched, uh, what they did do their first round, they chose two PBMs, Express Scripts, not being one of them. So I don't know where that's going to go, but my hope is with that many lives there's a way that they could impact and change the industry. They could be very disruptive and maybe crack a little bit of what's going on now and potentially, you know, help everyone. So it's to be determined yet. The jury's still out on where HT is ultimately going to go.
0: Caterpillar, you just mentioned, contracted directly with pharmacies and created their own formulary. Did they mm-hmm. Eliminate their PBM relationship entirely, or do you still need a PBM even if yes? You're well,
1: it? yes, yes. They still use the PBM for claims processing. So the fact that they may have a direct contract with a independent pharmacy or with a chain, for that matter, but those claims still need to be processed. And at this point, they they do use a PBM for claims processing, and they do use a PBM for uh, rebate submission, I believe. Now. The rebate submissions they use are going to be probably less than maybe some of the larger PBMs because their formulary is maybe based more on clinical decisions rather than rebate-driven decisions. And what I mean by that is quite often a PBM may negotiate a very large rebate from a manufacturer, but that still, uh, even when you take the rebate away from the cost of the drug, it still costs more than some other alternative uh, choices that are clinically equivalent. So even though Caterpillar has has done a uh, a more clinically-based formula, they still need the PBM to submit the rebates to the manufacturers for them.
0: What does a direct contract with a pharmacy look like in this case? So they're negotiating their own prices and the price of dispensing?
1: Yes. Yeah, and, and, and Caterpillar has an advantage that, unfortunately, a lot of payers don't in that the bulk of their population, of their employees, is in a relatively tight geographical area. If a pharmacy does not want to participate you know, in a Caterpillar network, whether it's a Caterpillar direct network or a PBM that Caterpillar hired – They're going to be losing quite a bit of business because of the large percentage of people who work for Caterpillar in this geographical area. So, having that gave Caterpillar an advantage to, you know, pharmacies are definitely going to want to participate. And frankly, a lot of pharmacies don't like PBMs anyway. So, if they could, you know, if they can contract directly with a payer, I think a lot of them would. So, that worked for Caterpillar. Now, if you've got another company who has, you know, employees scattered, All over the United States and not a great huge percentage in any geographical area, then it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to contract directly with pharmacies. Now, you could still contract with organizations that represent pharmacies, such as most of the major wholesalers have what's called a PSAO or a group of pharmacies that, uh, you know, they support or there's other independent PSAOs. So there's still a way of doing the pharmacy contracting. But it's not an overly easy thing to do and that's why it hasn't happened to this point a lot other than situations like Caterpillar where again you had a large percentage of population in a geographical area.
0: There's a lot of provider aggregators that are starting to pop up and organizations that will go and negotiate directly with surgery centers or PCPs or other provider groups and then the employer can contract with the aggregator and kind mm-hmm. of build their own network. Mm-hmm. Do you see that same thing happening on the pharmacy side?
1: It could. Again, to this point, it has there hasn't been a real incentive or need for it to happen because, again, one of the advantages of why a employer would hire a PBM is they do all the work. I mean, you basically have, have given away the control of your pharmacy program, but you've also given away all the work that goes with it, too. So you didn't have to worry about contracting a network. You didn't have to worry about all these other things. as long as the PBMs you know somewhat control costs, then it makes sense just to use that. But when we get to the situation like we're in now where clients are seeing huge increases and they're they're wondering about how the PBMs are actually making their money and all that, then then there could be an incentive in the right situation for a group to find someone who could who could dug in aggregate or negotiate pharmacy contracts for them. There's ways that they could do their own claims processing if you wanted to go out and, and find that. There are companies that do rebate aggregation. So you don't have to get the rebates through the PBM. So the services out there to, in essence, mimic or replicate PBM services are there. It just hasn't been a real incentive to do it to this point because it was it seemed to be easier just to hire a PBM and hopefully they, uh, they did a good job for you. I think the market is going to determine if that model exists or what changes need to happen to it over the next few years.
0: I want to weave together a couple of loose ends into a question for you here, Tim. One of the things that you alluded to early on was that there are drugs that you wonder why they're included on the the formulary. The, mm-hmm. the question mark is out there, why these drugs are covered and driving up pharmacy costs. So that was one kind of thing that you sort of teased yeah. us with. And then on the other side, you said Caterpillar made their own formulary. So clearly, someone is attempting to to solve this. Do you want to just talk about what the problem and perhaps solution Sure, is?
1: sure. We give you a couple examples. You got things like Vimovo is a product that uh, is a combo product. In other words, two drugs Put it In the same pill. In the case of Vomovo, it is uh, Nexium and Naprosin. And the reason you do that is Naprosin obviously is for joint pain or for other kinds of pain, but it does have a side effect of irritating the stomach and theoretically can even cause an ulcer. Nexium, along with some other products, but Nexium is one of them that prevents that action on the stomach. So it makes sense to logically put them together. Well, putting them together winds up costing several thousand dollars a month for the convenience of those two drugs being uh, in one pill, versus if the physician would be to write a prescription for Napserson and a prescription for Nexium, which they're also over-the-counter, by the way, in, in smaller strengths, you'd be looking at, at 20 to $25 a month versus several thousand dollars. Now, true, uh, you probably get some kind of rebate uh, when you use Vimovo but I doubt seriously the rebate would take it from $3000 down to 25. Yes, it's a little more convenient for the patient, but is is that the kind of thing that you as a payer with financial responsibilities do you want to allow that to happen? Another example is uh, metformin, which is a product used for diabetes, and it's been a stable of diabetic care for years. Generic uh, metformin again costs 10 or 20 bucks a month. The problem is you have to take it multiple times a day, two to three times a day. They have come out with a new formulation of of metformin that's a once-a-day drug, but that once-a-day drug again costs several thousand dollars a month versus twenty or thirty dollars. So yes, you may have a little better patient compliance with someone who only has to take a pill once a day, but is it worth several thousand dollars? Uh, A month for the patient to take two pills a day versus one a day. Those are the kind of things that can make up a formulary decision. Another example is rheumatoid arthritis. You could have a situation where patients normally, if they follow the step therapy, they start with methotrexate, then they go to an injectable product. And then if those don't work, they can go to another product that has a different mechanism of action. Well, because of rebates, you may see the prior authorization process that PBMs manage is where you have to try two injections that work kind of the same way before you are able to go to a different a product with a different um, mechanism of action. Now, if that made sense clinically, that would be okay. But unfortunately, I think a lot of the reasons they're done that for is because of the rebate dollars that those injections generate. That's what I mean by the difference between a clinically based, patient based formulary and a rebate driven formulary. One
0: of the things that I have often heard said, but it is really true and probably bears mentioning right now, is that healthcare is the only industry where somebody pays for the dinner, somebody else orders the dinner, and then a third party eats it. (laughs) The one thing that is hard not to think of in this context is the provider, the physician. Somebody's prescribing these products. Are physicians unaware of the fact that if they prescribe a combination of two cheap generics at a cost of several thousand dollars into the system, that this is happening and that it might behoove everybody, you know, including the patient, to, to just write the two cheaper generics?
1: I think that's a good example of, you know, a physician has an awful lot to, to manage, not just the prescriptions for a given patient, but obviously the other things that are going on. And with our system the way it is today, if, you know, if you visited a physician recently, you know, you're lucky if you get 15 minutes, you know, with the physician as opposed to, uh, you know, having something that would, someone that would take a little bit more time. So they're forced into to rapid decisions. No, for the most part, they don't know what these things cost unless the patient comes back to them. And if they're on a high deductible health plan where they have to pay, you know, a lot of money up front before the benefit really kicks into a copay type arrangement, then they may come back to the physician and say, hey, did you realize this thing cost me several thousand dollars a month? But for the most part, you know, physicians are looking for the best therapy and they have pharmaceutical reps come into their office and explain that hey, this product really does well. It's convenient for the patient. And unfortunately, quite often, the, the cost is not mentioned to the physician. So they, they just don't know. Hopefully, our industry is, is moving like the automobile industry is, how you buy a car. Now, with applications such as TrueCar or JT Redmonds and all that, I mean, you've got the person buying the car has a lot more information than they did in the past that they were able to get off the internet. Hopefully we're moving to the same thing with pharmacy and with therapy that patients can become a lot more educated, especially, again, as more of them in high deductible health plans. They need to take responsibility for looking around and saying, wow, is there alternatives? You know, go to a website that gives you alternatives. If you type in, you know, a product and it says, well, here's a generic alternative or here is a, a different therapy, hopefully they will take that information and be more engaged and go back to when the physician prescribes something. You know, one of the first things I tell people is always ask the physician, is there something that costs less that will do the same thing for me?
0: And if a patient prompts the physician with that question, then it might give the physician pause to think about it. And it might occur to them, hey, this is a branded product and there's two generics. Probably the two generics are going to be cheaper. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah. And again, hopefully, I mean, there are some products out there, Blink, GoodRx and a few others that offer pricing options for the patient. But really, it's some of the best resources they can get is to talk to their pharmacist. Pharmacist is also busy in the, in the new new world order, and uh, they don't have a lot of time either. But pharmacists are a, a really good resource to ask, hey, you know, I'm on this drug here. Is there something else that uh, that I could be on that would do the same thing for me that costs less?
0: Do you think that that will work at scale? I just did a podcast in November 2017 on the fact that we are expecting patients to be healthcare consumers, and mm-hmm. some of them are, but most people don't even realize that that's a thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, a lot of people, when they go into the doctor's office, they drop their IQ about 50%. They just don't ask questions. You know, They just do whatever the doctor says, so if we can get people more engaged and let them realize... They can be a consumer. And again, uh, there's, there's pluses and minuses to high deductible health plans. But if people are having to reach into their pocket to pay dollars out, hopefully that will motivate them to maybe ask about, is there something cheaper?
0: You work with a lot of employers. So by default, you work with a lot of employees. What have you seen from an engagement standpoint work? You know, is there something that certain employers are doing, which you have seen successfully transform your average person slash patient into an able bodied consumer?
1: There's technology available now that when a patient, let's say, gets a prescription for that Vimovo product we talked to earlier, they might get a text message back. If the PBM is really doing the job and is really caring about cost instead of how much rebates they generate, they could send a message to the patient's phone saying, you might want to talk to your pharmacist and physician. There could be a cost-saving alternative. So I think modern technology is going to jump into there a little bit. And again, people, uh, when they start paying dollars out of their own pocket, hopefully they will look for some of these options and, and educational abilities to become better purchasers.
0: Yeah. And then obviously, as you said, there's pros and cons because the flip side of that is that there is actually a product that does have a clinical advantage that was prescribed for a very specific reason. And if the PBM or other party has kind of perverse incentives, they might be switching to a product they got a bigger rebate for, or whatever, you know. So it's just it's such a tangled web we weave.
1: Yes, it is a very complicated industry, which is why a lot of employers just kind of throw their hands up and uh, they expect their consultant uh, and or PBM to be doing the job for them, and unfortunately. That doesn't always happen. So the employers have to take a a more active role in just as the patients do, of, of educating themselves and just not letting the system happen to them, but to engage the system.
0: So talk about Crystal Clear Rx and how you engage with the system.
1: We're a pharmacy benefit consultant and research company. And what I mean by that is we help employers try to negotiate better contracts with their PBMs. Uh, we help them with PBM selection if it comes up that they feel like they want to make a change. But the research part of it is where I find it really exciting is we are able to look at the data and find these things that we can go back to the employer and make recommendations to say, listen, if you alter your formulary a little bit, um, you can save a lot of money. Here's some options that the patients, uh, for example, I had one yesterday that uh, we, were, we were talking to a client and we found that less than 50 patients were costing 10% of the total spend for pharmacy. Not that those 50 patients, I mean, that may be legitimate. That maybe there's nothing else you can do about it. But certainly, you'd want to research that and see if there's things that that we could do to better manage those patients and their costs. In a nutshell, that's what we do is we help everything soup to nuts from either auditing your PBM to just to see are they doing their job, to helping you find a PBM, to negotiate a contract, to helping you find cost-effective solutions.
0: And that 10% that you uncovered, I mean... Obviously, if it was just yesterday, you probably haven't done the research yet. But what would you be looking for? Maybe there's an earlier
1: example where you actually found something. <laughs> things like uh, Vimovo uh, and some other combo products were being utilized. Some of the expensive diabetic products were being utilized that have alternatives, those kind of things. So, it actually, you know, we, we actually already talked to the client and they are going to organize a call with the PBM and with us to try to. See if we can address some of these issues. So, again, if you have a uh, a good company working for you, trying to find alternatives, that, that helps.
0: And where can people find more information about Crystal Clear RX should they be interested in learning more, Tim?
1: Certainly, you could go to our website, which is uh, www.crystalclearrx.com.
0: Thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.